wish to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. Happy to see all of you here. Invite you to worship with us. I'd like to read from Matthew 24 for an opening meditation. And as a text for the message, the message this morning will be dealing with or speaking to apostasy, warning of apostasy, warning against lukewarmness. And that's why I'm looking at this passage, Matthew 24, reading verses 1 through 13. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. There's a lot in this passage. I'm not going to spend much time here, but I'd like to take a note of, of a few verses here. Verse 4, take heed that no man deceive you. So there is a possibility for deception. And, and Jesus recognizes that, that, that there, his disciples would face deception says, for many shall come in my name. And I suppose this, this passage here was used a lot, maybe in the past few weeks, especially with uh, Mr. Camping's prediction of the end of the world coming. But I'm not, necess- I'm not wanting to focus on that aspect. Uh, Take heed that no man deceive you. Many shall come in my name, saying I'm the Christ. They shall deceive many. Here are wars and rumors of wars. We've seen that. Nation shall rise against nation. All of this. Then shall many be offended. So here in verse 9, I'd like to, to look at this. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted, shall kill you, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. That's worrisome to me. But not as worrisome as the next verse is, uh, verse 10. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. These are what I see the, the, the worrisome 
verses, the worrisome uh, prophecy of Christ, uh, due to the culture of iniquity, the natural love of mankind will be seriously diminished, will wax cold. And this will place a greater strain on the Christian as well. Uh, his light might burn brighter in the darkness. It's true, the light that's in the darkness burns brighter, gives more effect. But it also takes more energy. Uh, a simple candle here in the darkness, whether it's like this or whether it's dark, it doesn't take any more energy either way. But for a Christian's light to burn light more or to burn bright in darkness, I think it, it does take more energy. It takes, uh, it takes uh, more of a commitment when all those influences are bearing in and pressing in. And that coldness is coming in to take out that heat. Love works against the enemy's agenda. Trust, communication, and friendliness are not part of the devil's program. And so he, he wants to extinguish those, those attributes of Christianity. A stronger presence of evil brings with it distrust, secrecy, and coldness. That's what the devil would promote. And the very nature of evil itself is to bring fear, is to bring subjection through fear, is to intimidate, to create a thoughtless loyalty, uh, a loyalty that doesn't come from the heart, but comes by intimidation and by a learned response. We, 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 we see that, especially in communist cultures and cultures of, of oppression, where from the time a child's very young until through adulthood, they're taught to to obey not out of natural response, but out of learned response. They're given a uh, the, the rulers are exalted to an, an undue place. So this is, these are the things that will happen in the end. Uh, love will wax cold. Verse 13, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So it's not enough to make a good start. We must endure. We must persevere to the finish line. He that endures to the end will be saved. I want to switch a little bit and look at an Old Testament character. Uh, you remember in the Old Testament, a, a, a man that may be known... <coughs> best for a, a statement about his wife and that is remember Lot's wife uh, we, we know a lot about Lot but we we that statement uh, is is brought up many times remember Lot's wife why she was turned into a pillar of salt wasn't she I expect that a large this is, in my imagination, a large rock from, or a large burning piece of sulfur came down and hit her when she turned back, looking back towards Sodom as it was being destroyed, and she evaporated, basically, into that pillar of, of sulfuric, hot sulfuric rock. Um, that's my imagination. It could be different. Your imagination may be different, but regardless, it says, remember Lot's wife. She was turned into a pillar of salt, it says. That her being turned into a pillar of salt and remembering her has a lot more to do with 
with uh, Lot's journey than it does with her being in, turned into that pillar of salt. And, and that's what I'd like to look at that, that journey a bit here this morning, that journey of apostasy in, in Lot's life. Lot had a good start, didn't he? He was the nephew of, of uh, Abraham, uh, a man very much respected by God, a man who communed with God. He was treated well by Abraham. He seemed to have every advantage of a child as, as, as being in Abraham's family. Abraham cared deeply for Lot. He was considerate of him. Under Abraham's hand, Lot accumulated large herds of livestock, accumulated wealth. Abraham let Lot have his choice of the land. When it came time to separate their holdings, um, Lot made decisions, lots of decisions, and it took him to a place where we remember Lot's wife. He chose the fertile plains of, near Sodom. He chose a Sodomite wife, it seems like. He chose the Sodomite people and their culture by establishing his residence in the city. He chose the appealing, but he couldn't determine the result. And, and that's so true. He chose the appealing. He chose what appealed to him, but he couldn't determine, determine what the result would be. And the result was terrible. It was horrible. Lot narrowly escaped his own destruction with his wife and two daughters. Then, of course, his wife looked back and she was killed. God judged her because her heart was back in Sodom yet. What of Lot's wealth? His other children killed there in the city. His status and influence in, in Sodom. What, what happened to all of that? And then if we read the story further, it gets worse. Through an incestuous relationship with his daughters, he began the race of Moab and, and Ammon, who, who later proved to be a, a huge thorn for Israel. The apostasy process, lack of appreciation for God, I think, shows through here first and foremost. Lot didn't really seem to appreciate Abraham's God. You don't get the picture of, of Lot like you do of Ruth. And, and uh, you know, following, following uh, oh, why can't I think of Ruth and uh, Naomi? Thank you. You don't get the, the sense of, of his appreciation of, of Abraham and his God like you see in, in Ruth's life and her, appreciate, her appreciation for Naomi and her God. Uh, it, it seems like he was a tag along. He was along for the ride and what he could get from it. Lack of appreciation for godly influence for Abraham again. Preoccupation for material things. He wanted that good land. Compromise with Sodom and its culture. Taking a wife from there, moving in there, marrying the culture, if you will, along with his wife, the lifestyle. And, and finally, a willingness on Lot's part to even give his daughters to the men of the city to be molested. You know, that it seems like a, a long fall from where Lot had started out with, you know, under the tutelage of, of Abraham, this godly man, to, to, to this result, even willing to give his daughters up in this, this very evil, wicked way. 
And only because of Abraham's intercession, his uncle Abraham's intercession and the angel's insistence did Lot escape with his own life and with the lives of his daughters. You know, there, there was Lot, even in the end, benefited from, from Abraham's influence in his life. You could say with un, in, in an unmerited way. So there you have one picture of apostasy, if you if you will, from the from the life of, of a man in the Old Testament. Think of Saul, his rise and fall, a man who was basically pulled out of the luggage, out of the baggage, made king, he was elevated to high position, and due to his own arrogance and his disobedience, generally pulled himself away from God. I had to think of the Laodiceans and, and Christ's words to them. Revelations 3.14 And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then thou... So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. By being neither cold or hot, a person becomes a liability to God. I, I think of it as that way. Uh, I'm not God, so I can't, th- I can't think exactly how God thinks, but this is the way I see it. When a person is hot for God, he's an asset in God's kingdom. You know, he's, he's out there, he's... he's building God's kingdom. He promotes and furthers God's cause. A cold person is one who makes no profession for God. He's lost. He needs the work of God and is to be accomplished in his life. He's a candidate for God's grace, for God's finishing work in his life. So, so there, there you have a person that's not a liability. He's a candidate, the cold person. The lukewarm person is so because of, of his different loyalties. There's nothing so trying or disgusting as a relationship of many loyalties, of mixed loyalties. Imagine being on a ball team where your team's pitcher was cheering for the other team. That would be disgusting, wouldn't it? You're on a ball game and you're on a ball team and your pitcher is, is cheering for the other team. You know, it's trying to make it work out so the other team wins. You'd find that very disgusting. Or you're in a business partnership where your partner was, in effect, working for your competition. It wouldn't be a good thing. Or perhaps in a humanitarian organization where your employee was stealing goods meant for relief of poverty or nakedness. You know, these, these are things, mixed loyalties, those, those are disgusting, and that's how God sees it when we have mixed loyalties. When our loyalties are, you know, we, we want to be attached to here, to God, but we have all these different things that have equal or maybe precedence to that. And God says, because of that, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I hate that. Lukewarmness is a point on the road of apostasy. Where that point is on that road, I'm not sure. But it is a point on the road of apostasy, and I think it's down the road a ways. Apostasy defined as a renunciation of religious faith, 
or abandonment of previous loyalty. Defection would be another word for it. So what about us? How could apostate influences affect us today? Teaching is one apostate influence that could affect us today. Teaching. Teaching that delves into the obscure to explain the clear away. Uh, That can happen. Teaching that delves into the obscure to explain the clear or to to explain the clear into a different light than what it is easily understood. Teaching that picks and chooses scripture to explain one's viewpoint. I recently heard a a preacher uh, explaining in a sermon on the radio about how that, that uh, explaining why it was right for, for the U.S. to be at war with Libya in such a way that the church and state were combined. And, and uh, you know, at, at the end, he, it, it seemed like he was saying it, it's fine. It's in, the tenor of the scripture is fine, you know, to, to, if, you, if you with a heart of love and compassion place a bullet into your enemy's skull. That, that's, that's okay if you do it with a heart of love and compassion is what seemed to come through to me. And he quoted different he quoted different scriptures and he quoted Saint Augustine. And I had to think, you know, how can you do that? How 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 can he look at Matthew five and six and the rest of Scripture speaking with 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 dealing with one's enemies? Um, you know, the, the Bible does talk, and we talked about I talked about that a few Sundays ago. The Bible does talk about how the government has. The right to bear the sword, but that doesn't go to the church, uh, and and that's not for the king, the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom children. Uh, how how can you manipulate scripture like that to to uh, say that it's right to take another person's life, or that you can do that with a heart of love and compassion? I'm not sure how how that, you know, when when you hear teaching like that, that has to spend a lot of time moving around, manipulating scripture, bringing another other writings of, of other people outside of scripture then you have a then you have reason for for putting that aside not not keeping it in the same place as, as bible teaching that that places the writings of the the early church most notably the post constantinian writing that would be after constantine on a pedestal above the clear words of jesus uh, those those writings, uh, you can you can count on it are influenced by Constantine, are influenced by a church-state combination, and are going to be uh, riddled with with statements that that don't come from Jesus' pure teaching. Uh, Pre-Constantinian, and I'm not a I don't feel like a, a good scholar here. I'm, I'm quoting some from David Verso. Well, maybe I'm a good scholar, but I'm not thoroughly learned. So you you may find places where you can put bullets through through some facts. But on the whole, generally speaking, uh, uh, pre-Constantinian writings are considered apostolic writings and will have to do, will match up 
with what we read in our Bible here will match up with the, uh, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Teaching that uses human dogma to persuade. This goes along with, with what I mentioned earlier, that delves into the obscure or just uses human dogma. In effect, says, you know, uh, this is just the Bible here, the words of Christ, the words of Paul. They're a good guide, but they're not necessarily absolute. We're, we're supposed to use them as a, a living document, if, if you will. It is a living document, but it's not one that man can just change around to fit, to, uh, to come, to, 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 to justify his practice. And when that happens, it's an, it's an apostate influence. When man uses this to, to uh, and moves it around to, to explain his own practice, it becomes apostate. Uh, teaching that, that or, or methods of legislation to persuade, of, of putting in, in place laws and, and putting in place of governing bodies in such a way that it, it brings uh, the subjects into uh, subjection simply through through legislation and through the uh, punishment tactics and that sort of thing. It doesn't go along with Bible teaching. Um, teaching that places more emphasis on adherence to doctrines than living a godly life patterned after the Sermon on the Mount. And what I'm talking about here is not doctrines that we pull out of Scripture that are like the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of, of uh, baptism, of marriage. These are all easily understood. I'm talking about doctrines that, that become complicated simply because they're not easily pulled uh, from verse to verse. Let's say I'm going to bring up one, the doctrine of eternal security. Um when you sort through that and you shake it out, um, you have to start. You have to start piecing together scripture to make that work, and you have to start leaving out some scripture to make it work. And so, when you when you subscribe to that, you're actually you're actually setting that above uh, verses that you find right here in the Bible. So when you when you have to do that, it's a it's an apostate. It becomes an apostate doctrine. Teaching that puts a preoccupation on the external, such as status, rank, and dress, and that primarily promotes Christian theory. I know this may sound somewhat theoretical, but I think it's important for us as we study Scripture, as we are faced with a constant barrage of thought, of commentary, it's important that we establish what is, what should we be looking for in our studies? What should we be looking for as a, as a guide through this? Error that we're living in. Teaching that promotes Christian theory. Uh, I don't think we need Christian theory. We need Christian facts. And it comes from right, right here in the Bible. We, we can read it. We don't have to dodge around it. We don't need to dodge around it. Um, what about apostate practices? I'd like to look at that again. Practices that deny God, the power of God, by refusing Him the right of full control in our lives. This comes maybe a little closer to home. 
practice that denies the power of God by refusing him the right of full control in our lives. And I'm speaking to myself here. I'm going to try to bring it down closer to home. What about, you know, just practice that refuses God the right of our purse strings, for example. Refuses God the right of, of, you know, an open hand policy with our funds. Um, that That's apostasy because it goes against what God wants for us. He wants our whole heart. When he says that, he wants everything of us. And when we refuse in any area of our life, we, became, we, we head down the road of apostasy. Practice that willingly entertains sin and encourages the lust of the world. A preoccupation with sports, media, materialism, politics. When I say preoccupation, I mean an unhealthy interest in this. And I believe in politics there's a difference between an awareness of politics and an involvement with politics. We're called to be carefully and prayerfully, or we're called to be prayerfully involved in politics, aren't we? But that's it. That's all the further we're called to go. We're called to pray for those in positions of authority. Not being preoccupied with these things. And, and that's easy for me to do. It's easy for me to be preoccupied with materialism. It's easy for me as I study for this message, as I studied for it, to be thinking of, you know, something to do along the lines of business and to, to find myself, you know, doing a little research here when I was to be researching this. So uh, the, these things creep in in a, in a small way. Media. You know, what about Facebook? When we're should be studying the word, and that's speaking to myself, it's easy, you know, because of media, it's so easy to become distracted. I should be studying the word, be connecting, you know, with some uh, trivia that's that friends have put up on Facebook, some pictures, you know, of of their family camping party, or you know, whatever, you know, not not bad things in themselves, but. It's just easy to become preoccupied with, with media and with the quick way we can communicate with each other. Practice that creates pillars of security and stability outside of the, the, of the New Testament pattern or framework. A trust, in other words, a trust in the world systems of security over the trust of the brotherhood. And, and this is can be as broad as you know, where do we invest our money to, uh, where do we go for help when we need help? When we have a, 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 uh, a need in our lives, do we run to the world or do we consult the brotherhood? I'm going to let you fill the blanks in a lot of this because I simply don't have time or the ability to. A practice that places an unhealthy emphasis on group conformity. You know, Constantine's setting up the Catholic Church. Think of that. He's setting up the Catholic Church and demanding all be Catholic, church and state together. Luther demanding that all babies be baptized into the state church. There you have a, they were trying to use group conformity 
to gain control of the of the, all their people. Um, think of the Amish insisting that all men wear white shirts. I'm just throwing out some things. The Mennonites more recently insistence on covering strings, strings even after the wind wasn't blowing their bonnets around. Um, you know, we can, we can fall off the cliff both ways into apostasy. We can go uh, to the right. We can go to the left. Uh, we can put up little idols in, our, in the middle of our congregation here that would distract us from our true worship in, in Christ and in the word. At the same time, we can go out, and so we need a we need a uh, we need the word to to keep us in the as the song goes in the middle of the road. Uh, but more than the middle of the road, we need to be in the middle of, of Christ's word. Uh, apostasy shows itself whenever influences outside of Bible teaching, commentary, or culture or anything else affect our practice, the way we live, the way we dress, the way we uh, relate to others. When influences outside of Bible teaching affect our, our thinking in such a way that, that we change our thinking from here to somewhere else simply for, for uh, or when we conflict, this with something else simply to please others or to fit in better, we become candidates for apostasy. Think of the early Christians in Acts 15. They, the Jewish Christians there demanded the, the Christian Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And this, is, this would have been a form of apostasy for them to have to keep the law of Moses for these Christian Gentiles to have to have been circumcised and to follow the law of Moses uh, because it didn't fit in with Christ's New Testament teaching. And it would have been an addition and it would have elevated the law of Moses and circumcision above what Christ taught. So it would have been apostasy. And the apostles responded to that. They said they shouldn't be given that unnecessary burden. They shouldn't be called to that. They, they, and they gave a few things. They mentioned a few things that they would be called to. Mostly had to do with obedience to Christ's commands, to the word of God, or to the word of Christ, to walk in grace. God has given man a, a finite, what I mean a limited amount of energy. And when this energy is expressed in patriotism for our pet ideals, our goals, our personal aspirations, materialism, anything else that you could think of, our ability to build, to kingdom build, uh, dwindles. That energy is expanded. We can't grab it and bring it back. We've, we've spent it. Um, now, there is grace, and we can change course, and we can, we can move in the right direction. But I think we need to be careful uh, we become, I believe, weak and apostate when when we expend our energy in in things that are other than Christian discipleship. Any doctrine that negates the Sermon on the Mount or those principles 
that isn't firmly couched in Christ's teaching, that exalts or promotes persons or beings above what's prom- what they're promoted in Scripture, that arbitrarily make assumptions of the, new, uh, of the value of New Testament writings, we can count those as apostate teachings. Do we have apostate teachers today? I trust we don't in our circles of fellowship. But there are certainly, or there is certainly, very apostate teaching circling around us in so-called biblical circles. To give you a few examples, the false teachings our Anabaptist forefathers dealt with during the Reformation. I'm going to read a a, a bit here out of David Bursault's book, Will of Theologians, please sit down. I'm going to ask you to tell me who, who might have wrote this. If you've read this book, why? You can let someone else answer. What shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? We dare not tolerate their conduct. Now that we are aware of their lying and blaspheming, if we do, we become sharers in their lies, cursing, and blaspheming. I shall give you my sincere advice. First set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done in the honor of our Lord in Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. This will bring home to them the fact they are not masters in our country as they boast. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that the safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, for they have no business in the for they have no business in the countryside, since they are not lords, officials, tradesmen, or the like. Let them stay at home, for you for you must not and cannot protect them unless you wish to become participants in their abominations in the sight of God. Sixth, I advise that charging interest be prohibited to them and that all cash and treasure of silver and gold be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Through usury, they have stolen and robbed from us all they possess. Seventh, I recommend putting a flail and axe, a hoe, a spade, a distaff, or spindle into the hands of the young, strong Jews and Jewesses and letting them earn their bread in the sweat of their brow. For it is not fitting that they should... Let us accursed Gentiles toil in the sweat of our faces while they, the holy people, idle away their time behind the stove, feasting, and on top of all, boasting blasphemously of their lordship over the Christians by means of our sweat. No, we should toss out these lazy rogues by the seat of their pants. Finally, let us emulate the common sense of other nations such as France, Spain, Bohemia, and eject them forever from their country. Who may have wrote this? Or who do you think may have wrote that? Anyone but Jerry. <laughs> it was Martin Luther. It was Martin Luther. <clears throat> and so this, this is what our Anabaptist forefathers dealt with in the time of the Reformation. Okay? This is false teaching that they dealt with. Uh, apostasy that they that they had to to uh, work through. Now, what about the the false teaching our grandparents faced in the 1930s and 40s? You know, we have a man, we all know who he is, who says this: "I will once 
more be a profit if the international Jew financiers in, in and outside Europe should succeed in plunging the nations once more into world war, then the result will not be the Bolshevizing of the earth, and thus the victory of Jewry, but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. Of course, that was Adolf Hitler. Uh, do you wonder when you read these two how that World War II or the, the uh, feeling against the Jews could have surfaced by the time of Adolf Hitler and how that uh, Christianity, as was known in, in Germany, could have come in behind Hitler and carried that through when, when in effect Germany is made up of Martin Luther evangelical Christians? Um, and I don't say this, you know, Martin Luther has his place in history. He, he certainly did Christianity a service in some ways. Uh, but, you know, he, he erred in this. He, he, he took off on his own course, and, and people did. And, and whenever he was, his hand was called, he simply answered an arrogance to it. It was Martin Luther that said that uh, Galatians, Matthew, James, Hebrews are all writings of straw and stubble. And uh, said that Romans is the only writing that's in Romans and, and John are the, the writings of, of uh, uh, that would stand the test of fire. You know, he, he, he arbitrarily came up and said that. Well, you know, really... Did he have the right to do that? He didn't. What about the false teachings of today? What do we face? And, and part of the reason that I was drawn towards this subject is, is because I'm I keep I track a blog that is is mainly made up of, of Mennonite thought and thinkers. And you know, I thought certainly, even though these these Mennonites are much more liberal and progressive than what I am. Certainly there would be a core value there that's very similar. And I, I'm shocked sometimes what I read. And, and I read s several articles that, that really made me think of this subject. One article was this, this lady was writing, and she, she was promoting the idea that there's not a hell. She ridiculed anyone that would say there's a hell. And, uh, you know, ended her statement by saying that she talked she was talking with her six-year-old son and her six-year-old or six-year-old grandson. And this is a Mennonite lady, so-called. Well, she is. Uh, and, and her son, her son said, "Mama, you know, if, uh, God, uh, God could never put anyone in, in hell. Not even maybe for two days if he was really bad, but forever he couldn't do that." She, and, and her statement was, "You know, out of the mouth of babes comes real wisdom." Well. You know that that's no uh, to get to to take the the uh, thought of a child and elevate it above God's word is no way to to make sure that we end up where we want to be. It's nothing to draw a line by. Um, also, there's a, a more recent article of a of a uh, person promoting uh, the Gay Pride Month. This month is Gay Pride Month, I guess, and uh, among many other things. And uh, she was promoting that, saying how that she just hopes, you know, the rest of her peers will wake up and, and see this, and how that this is her special mis mission to, to help people appreciate 
a gay, lesbian lifestyle, and so forth. Um, hopefully that's not mainstream. Hopefully, you know, that's well outside of mainstream. But just the fact that it is circulated and it's not answered back to, I should have answered back to, but I didn't. Uh, I haven't so much as poked my nose in it yet. I just am a silent observer. But I didn't see anyone give any good, strong response. It, 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 it scares me to think how, how quickly these people have gone from one place to another. The point is that when we go to writings for insights on any issue of Scripture, be it war, salvation, eternal rewards, baptism, these writings of prominent or eminent men, when you hear prominent or eminent or doctor so-and-so, put your, put your uh, alerts up. Uh, writings of early church fathers, when you hear people say that, you know, use it for backing for their um, theology. Put your antennas up. Um, when, when these, if these writings don't line up very closely, I'm not saying what I mean when I say very closely, uh, I should say more accurately, if they don't line up exactly with Christ's teachings, you can put them out as, as hay, straw, and stubble. You can do that. That's not arrogance on your part. Uh, it's arrogance if we take and we try to evaluate Scripture and put, place different values on it. That's what becomes arrogance. In the end, it isn't James, Matthew, and Hebrews that are works of strong stubble, as Martin Luther professed, but the works of St. Augustine in promoting war on the enemies of the church, Luther manipulating the scriptures to say, what he, to say what he willed, such as encouraging the German nobles to bring an end to the peasant revolution, encouraging them to draw the sword to kill. You know, that, I'm not I'm real familiar with that peasant revolution, but from what I read, the, the reading I did do, they estimate anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000 died in that revolution that Martin Luther encouraged. Um, for modern-day theologians to minimize the virgin birth, the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement for sin, Christ standing in the, in the deity, Christ being the Son of God, uh, minimize that and try to put him in somewhere else. The Christian's call to obedience, minimize that. For, for theologians to do that, those are works of hay, straw, and stubble that, that will be burned, that will be consumed. And when we hear those, we don't. Those are works of apostasy, and we don't want anything to do with them. We don't want that to affect us in any way, or let it affect us in any way. Well, I'll try to bring this to a close here. First um, Timothy says, "In the end, in the last times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy." Um, Romans says this, Romans 16, 17, 29, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. Mark them, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Um, Timothy 3, 1 through 14, says this, Know in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Traitors, heady, high-minded, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Again, avoid them.
and then on into the passage, verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. That's how we can avoid apostasy, by continuing in the things which we have learned from here, from the Bible, um, is how we can avoid the pitfalls of apostasy. And and last of all, I'd like to look up uh, Hebrews 3 and read verses 12 and 12 through 14. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And when Lot started out in his journey away from God into Sodom, I don't believe he did so willingly. I don't believe that he had any idea that his end would be running from Sodom with all his might and leaving with just his two daughters. Right here it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Take heed lest, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, To him that standeth, take heed lest he fall. It's easy for us to think we're standing when maybe we're falling. That's, I find that worrisome in my own life as I, as I study this subject. I'll have to admit it, it there were places that it, it shook me up and I hope it continues to shake me up. Uh, we need to take heed lest we fall. Him that standeth, take heed lest he fall. Lest there be in any of you a heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily. I believe this is another way we can avoid apostasy. Exhort one another daily. Enough. This is something I don't do enough. And I believe it's something other people don't do enough to me. Um, Maybe we have more responsibility to each other than we realize to, to exhort in personal way. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest in any of you, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto when? Unto half of our life is done, unto the end. Unto the end. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And that comes in so many shapes and forms. It comes through doctrine. It comes through materialism. It comes through our, our own uh, ambitions. Uh, it comes through our preoccupations with, with things that are trivial. Um, take heed lest you fall. Don't let these things, don't let anything uh, take your heart bring you to a point of unbelief. God bless you.